Hi, this is Craig Welch, and you are listening to the Leaders Lounge podcast. This episode of the Leaders Lounge is part one of a two-part series, and it is also a very special podcast because my Black Moss colleague, Larry Black, is the host for both episodes, and his very special guest is Mark Maypiece. So Larry, it's nice to have you here hosting the Leaders Lounge. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. For those of you who don't know Mark, Mark founded FTSE, the index provider in London in the 1990s and built it into one of the world's top three providers alongside S&P, Dow Jones, and MSCI. By the time he left in 2019, after having acquired the Russell indexes and Citibank's bond indexes, FTSE Russell was a global company by some measures the world's largest index provider with more than $16 trillion in assets following its benchmarks. Mark has just returned to the spotlight as the CEO of Wilshire, the LA-based asset management firm that is, among many other things, the home of the venerable Wilshire 5000 Index, which many of you may know is the broadest market benchmark for U.S. equities. Mark and I talked about what it takes to lead a startup, the determination, energy and ambition required to motivate a firm of what was back then only nine people to overcome the inevitable skepticism about their chances. To punch above your weight, as Mark likes to put it, means bringing people along with your vision. Mark, I should also mention, has just published a book, FTSE, The Inside Story, which is in many ways the history of the rise of technology-enabled investing. But it's also a great management story but how important it is to always be thinking about the future. Craig, I know Mark pretty well, but I have to say I've really found this conversation absolutely fascinating. Welcome to Black Moss Leaders Lounge. I'm delighted and honored to have as our guest today, Mark Makepeace. So we've got plenty of ground to cover today. Welcome, Mark, and congratulations on the book and on the Wilshire announcement. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So first of all, just in the spirit of full disclosure, I should say this conversation is a particular treat for me, as I was fortunate enough to work with Mark through what I, of course, think of as the glory days of FTSE. I joined FTSE in 2012 as it came of age, if you will, in the U.S., winning Vanguard's international business from arch-rival MSCI. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Mark, we're all keen to hear about your plans for Wilshire, but I thought we'd start off by focusing on FTSE. Maybe the place to start is really with the index business itself and how it's become so central to the investment world and I would argue to the global economy. A lot of people who are probably listening to the podcast today probably still think of financial indexes as a simple measurement of whether the market is up or down. An index provider is really as mere data vendors. I have to confess, I sort of thought that when I joined FTSE, and I was very, very wrong. Can you talk about those perceptions? Yes, indexation has really grown in the last five, 10 years. And you're right. Originally, indexation was to measure the performance of active managers. But of course, these days, the levels of passive investment have grown enormously. And if you look at where the funds are flowing, the funds are flowing almost uniquely into the low-cost index funds. Uh, And that's true in the equities world, and it's growing in fixed income. And the reason for that is really twofold. One, it's very difficult for active managers to consistently outperform the indices over time. 
But also we're in an economic cycle where low inflation, low interest rates and low expected returns, the costs of investment really matter because they are a bigger and bigger part of the returns. So if you're expecting a 10% per annum return, paying away 1% or even 2% may be considered expensive, but people are willing to do it. If you're expecting a 4% return, paying away 1% or 2% is no longer acceptable. And therefore, active management has really been challenged by this. And the indices, particularly because of technology and data sources available, can now replicate any of the active strategies. And in fact, you're getting the benefits, not just of low cost, but also much greater transparency. And you're getting the comfort that you're following the strategy you believe you invested in. It is a bit funny. I noted a a quote from Donald Bryden, who is the former chairman of the London Stock Exchange, comparing the indexes basically to the scoreboard of a cricket game that ends up influencing the way the game is played. It's an interesting way to think of it. And I think for our listeners who aren't used to thinking of indexes this way, it's kind of, a, I think, a useful guideline. But if you think about it, the, the scoreboard always influences the sport, whichever sport you were playing, because it gets more tense when you're chasing a score and the scoreboard is showing you getting closer and closer to that score. The tension rises. And the scoreboard is playing a part. And indices are the same. They're merely reflecting what the market is doing and what investors are choosing to do. But that transparency itself is incredibly valuable information. And once that information is available, it influences then people's behavior. And that's what indices do. But it's no more than better or more transparent information. Exactly. So let's now wind back and let's talk about how all this got started. What was interesting about your book was that it's as much the story of the evolution of the city of London as a modern financial center, I think, as it is the history of FTSE and the financial indexes. We want to focus today on your leadership of FTSE, but I think it'd be valuable for our listeners if you could take us back just for a minute to the 1980s and the Big Bang in London and how that initial role, your role essentially ended up leading to the founding of FTSE. And London and the city of London, when we go back to the mid-80s, it was very much divided in two. The London Stock Exchange and membership of the exchange was there for UK brokers and dealers dealing in UK stocks and shares. And of course, the international trading that went on, which was dominated by the American houses in London, was done off floor and away from the exchange. And what happened with Big Bang is all the sort of regulation that protected the brokers and dealers in the UK houses was taken away. And it opened up competition. And instead of that trading going to the market floor where the UK jobbers and brokers existed, of course, it went off floor to where the international houses, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanley's, And those with good memories, the Salomon brothers existed. And it became an incredibly exciting world because it turned the city of London into this global financial centre. 
and the city really prospered from that moment on. So it was a huge change. It also introduced technology for the first time. And I do remember because the British houses and there was an old British house, Smith Newcourt, no longer exists, but they were one of the largest floor brokers. And they insisted that they wanted all the technology put on the floor because they were determined to stay on the floor and they believed the market would stay on the floor. It had clear advantages. And I'm sure as I'm talking, you can hear people on the New York Stock Exchange floor saying the same thing. <laughs> so they, we put all the technology on the floor. But of course, what happened, the big American houses with their technology and communications reach, it, it quickly became very clear that there was no purpose staying on a floor with technology when you could do so much more away from a floor. And you didn't need a market floor with people trying to meet face to face. And therefore, very quickly, the floor of the London Stock Exchange was closed and everybody moved upstairs. And the old UK brokerage firms sold up. And we then had international universal banks come into play and to be established, where they had a true global reach. And they did that from London. And it put London in an incredibly strong position. And why FTSE in the middle of all that? What was the logic of what was happening there that led to the inevitable creation of an information services capability? I was brought into London Stock Exchange to help coordinate uh, Big Bang. So after Big Bang had been successfully introduced, I was kicking my heels and working with various consultancies and strategists on what the exchange needed to do and what would the new role of an exchange be in a world where there was no trading floor. And this is where, first of all, I helped establish some of the information services, some of the early information services. And then I was asked to look at this area of indexation. And it was clear to me that as an exchange, it was going to be difficult to provide the sort of global view and global services that were needed. And when I looked at the clients in the UK, they wanted global benchmarks, not just benchmarks for the UK. And as I looked around how we could possibly do that, it became obvious very quickly to me that doing that within the exchange at that time would have been very, very difficult. And that's when I reached out and started to build relationships with the Financial Times and with the actuaries who had established a position in providing international equity indices at that time. And so I started to collaborate initially to strengthen the indices in the UK so that you had a single seamless set of indices for the UK, but really with the aim of how do we move beyond the UK? Because providing benchmarks for just a single market, I knew that that would very quickly not be enough. And to be able to compete internationally would have been very difficult within stock exchanges at that time. I think exchanges have changed today, but at that time, it would have been very difficult. Let's just stop for a second and talk about managing a startup. So FTSE was just nine people in what sounds like a pretty grotty office in St. Alphage's house back then. Yes. By the time you left early in 2019, FTSE Russell 
employed thousands of people in countries around the world. Looking back from your vantage point now, what components of your management style were important to the success of FTSE back in those early days? I, I think, and not just the early days, but carrying on, I think uh, as a manager who or leader who goes through these different stages and has sort of enormous success, you really have to be somebody who can change, have an ability to look at yourself and see how you need to change, ensure you're talking with people and getting their feedback. But it's that ability to keep changing yourself which is hard. When I go back to the beginning... Is that what people call agility? It it is about agility, but I think it goes beyond that. When we were beginning with nine people, the most important characteristics, I think, were the optimism, (laughs) energy, you know, sheer sort of determination. Those are the characteristics at the very beginning because everybody's telling you it can't be done. And I think you have to find ways in which it can be done. And at that time, when I went to see the clients, the clients were all within a 10-minute walk of the office. Uh, And then when I started traveling, it was traveling to Edinburgh in Scotland. (laughs) It wasn't the world that FTSE inhabited later on. So the skill sets in the beginning were, were skills which were, how do you engage with the clients when you're small? You've got to punch above your weight. So you've got to have that energy and ambition opportunities but you've also got to bring the staff along with you and get them to believe and it's almost a belief in what can be done exciting times yes it certainly was before i go on to talk about footsie on the world stage i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your own personal journey to the city of london and the global financial world really from upminster in east london via local labor council without having a university degree I'm not sure our listeners in North America are able to detect that your accent is not an Oxford <laughs> accent. But I know you've spent some time in the book talking about, at the time, certainly back then, of Eaton Toffs and East End Barrow Boys. Did you personally encounter sort of snobbery? That was very a different times. They were very different times. And I, I grew up in very much a working area in the east side of London. I left school at 16. Not because I wanted to, but because my parents needed me to leave school and to go to work and contribute to the family. But that wasn't unusual. That wasn't unusual in those days. So that was my upbringing. I suppose that gave me the determination. So I studied evening classes and worked my way up. So yes, I was in local government, working with quite left-wing socialist politicians. And I went from the inner city areas of deprivation and helping oversee the housing and the tenants in those areas to the heart of the city. It was a shock to the system, but it also was a city that was very divided. It was a city where those with the trading mentality at that time that came from similar backgrounds to myself were matched against often the management of the the UK houses uh, and blue-blooded companies like Casino, where the members of those firms came from completely different social backgrounds. Uh, And I remember because I joined to oversee uh, Big Bang, but actually I joined as a clerk in Big Bang and was promoted very quickly by one of the partners of Casino, Sir Patrick Mickford Slade. 
and he was an Etolian, a former guardsman. So if you think about it, we had very, very little in common. But actually, he helped me enormously. And he chose me and pulled me out from a a group and put me in a position of authority and supported me. And I had huge respect for him. But we were very different. But that was particularly the UK at that time. And I did go from that very working background and then suddenly thrown into where there were, first of all, the blue-blooded British side, and then the international and the American, with quant-based investing and very well-educated people from the very best universities across the US. For me, I saw it as a challenge. It was always a learning challenge, and each step of the way, you had to improve and up your game. And I suppose I'm the type of person who enjoyed that. So each time I knew I had to go away and almost reinvent myself and be better. And I think that's what drove me. And I just had the type of character that I was able to flourish in that environment. So it wasn't necessarily that you didn't face, I mean, it's too big a word, maybe discrimination, <laughs> but that you accepted it as a challenge. Yeah, I mean, you could describe it as discrimination, but I accepted it as a challenge. In the US, I think they thought I had an Australian accent, whereas in the UK <laughs> would have placed me in London and would have known my roots immediately. That's very interesting. But it would, to me, it was just, that's another challenge to overcome. Yeah. And some people who would, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally, it didn't really matter. You just had to rise above that, treat it as exactly the same as any other challenge. Going back to FTSE, you've talked about coming to North America. FTSE moved beyond the UK quite quickly, right? Within two or three years, you decided you needed global indexes. But I think there's a perception, and maybe this is in North America, of FTSE still as the UK index, not a global one in the way, say, MSCI is perceived, again, maybe in North America. I always think that's a bit ironic, given that the FTSE 100 itself, the flagship, isn't really a benchmark of the British economy. By the nature of Britain as an open center and the composition, something like less than a quarter of the FTSE 100 is, in fact, tied or exposed to the UK economy. What do you think about those perceptions, uh, FTSE being the London index? And no, and there's a number of facts. I mean, when you're the flagship and you're seen every single day on the news as the headline for the UK market, which is what the FTSE 100 was, you're then in some ways pigeonholed. It's a bit like being an actor who's in a very successful show. And it doesn't matter what your talents are, you're in some ways pigeonholed. But then FTSE did have huge international success. Uh, and by the time I left, we had something like over $16 trillion following us. And we were, by assets, the biggest index provider in the world. So we had huge success globally. But you're right, when people watched on the screen, whether they were sitting in um, New York or San Francisco or LA, they would see the FTSE 100. And of course, the international equity indices, they would often see the domestic index rather than the global benchmarks. So they didn't have the same visibility. So that was always a challenge. And the brand, of course, originated from the UK and the FT has a similar challenge to us. But we shouldn't forget the values that were associated with that brand. 
were also very British in nature. It was about fair play. It was all of those good characteristics that you do associate with Britain. Now, when we acquired Russell, we were mixing the two brands, FTSE Russell, and we were trying to go beyond being either a British brand, which had global success, to try and become a global brand. I'm not sure we quite got there, but I think we were on the way. I think it's a tough thing to do. Even if you think of a Google, you think of Google as a global company, but you still think of it as a US company that is successful all over the world. I remember thinking about this at one point and raising the idea with Jonathan rather than you directly that we should rebrand the FTSE 100 to the FTSE UK 100 as a way to free ourselves from that. But I think I would have been killed <laughs> on the spot <laughs> if I messed around with that brand. Well, I always remember when British Airways took the name British Airways off its planes and replaced it with BA. And I think the chief executive nearly lost his position because of that. National issues, I think, are important to many people. And we shouldn't forget we're going through a time where national political issues are becoming a bigger and bigger influence. We shouldn't forget that. And brands. I think you've raised the issue of how important and sensitive brands are. This next question relates a bit to that obliquely. So my sense of things, the index business really took off when people, instead of thinking as indexes just as measures of the market, began to really see them as a clever, lower cost vehicle for investing money, as you mentioned earlier. That passive investment trend, we all know, started with Vanguard and John Bogle. And then we had a transformation again when it became clear you didn't need to be using market cap as the yeah. way that you constructed. And, we and, and that was the, and you've got to say, whether it was the invention or certainly made popular by Rob Arnold from Research Affiliates. Absolutely. And that had enormous impact on the index industry. Because at the time, I partnered with Rob Arnold. At the time, we were both accused of creating something that was not an index. But in fact, what we did is we extended what indices could do. So as indices have become vehicles for passive investment, we were then showing that passive investment could be used to replicate any active strategy. And much of the investment world struggled with that. They clearly want a separation, whether they wanted to call it alpha and beta or passive and active. But of course, the world's more complex than that. And here we were able to replicate any investment strategy, and even mix those strategies. And what made it different is suddenly we were doing those things, but we were giving much greater transparency to what we were doing. Therefore, the index, you knew exactly what exposures you were seeking to acquire through investment. And we also made it low cost. And those two things really mean that indexation now can be extended across all the asset classes, can be extended to multi-asset. And I, I do think it will lead to a flip because today uh, passive investment is probably about 25% versus an active investment of 75%. That will flip and suddenly you'll find that active investment becomes 25% and passive investment will become much, much greater than the 75 but it will be such a mix of choices that really it is no more than a systematic approach 
to what previously was called active management. That's, that's so interesting. It does go to the heart of the question I was going to ask, which is whether the industry alternatively didn't miss a trick by rebranding smart beta or what have you as a whole new business. Passive investing is a terrible name, I think, for what was an amazingly powerful financial innovation. Yeah. It was a huge financial innovation. And I don't think people have accepted it. I think it's because they saw indexation as a lower skill, a lower requirement. But actually, indexation is about automation and data. And you're using data and technology to replace people. And I think that's what challenged, because people thought the people and the brightest people could produce better investment results than a much more systematic approach using technology and data. But of course, what we found is that that's not true. As more and more data becomes available and therefore the insight by using technology to adapt and analyze that data means that the options for indexation and passive management will get greater and greater. And it will become a bigger and bigger part of markets. But we shouldn't look at it as low skill. We should look at it as this is very high technology, giving us insights and capabilities that individuals can't get through looking at pages of numbers. We'll get into that when we talk a little bit about Wilshire. But it really is running an index is really, it's again, Donald Bryden called it virtual asset management. Just enabled by technology. And we'll get into that because that obviously raises a whole bunch of other issues we get on. But let's just talk quickly about FTSE for Good, which was launched way back in 2003. You and Roger Moore of James Bond fame, listeners are going to have to read the book to get the reference. Uh, We're way ahead of the market with FTSE for Good. This concludes the first part of our conversation with Mark Makepeace. Join us for part two, where we pick up how a chat over cigars with Roger Moore led to the creation of FTSE for Good and ESG Investing. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Leaders Lounge podcast. For more insights from industry leaders about overcoming challenges and realizing success in times of change and uncertainty, please go to blackmosspartners.com.